The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Picasso and the Old Masters, shows pairing the Spaniard with Angre and El Greco, open in London and Basel. Plus, Chris Levine's portrait of Queen Elizabeth II and what can be done about political interference in European museums. I talked to Christopher Riapel, curator of Picasso Ang face-to-face at the National Gallery, and Carmen Jimenez, curator of Picasso El Greco at the Kunstmuseum in Basel, about the profound influence of historic artists on Picasso's rupturing of tradition. For this episode's Work of the Week, our contemporary art correspondent Louisa Buck talks to Chris Levine, the creator of Lightness of Being, one of the best-known recent portraits of Queen Elizabeth II as the British monarch celebrates 70 years on the throne. And as the Polish government replaces yet another museum director, what can be done about political interference in museum governance? I talked to Garanka Horyan, director of Intercom, the International Committee for Museum Management, and Bart de Beer, chair of the Museum Watch programme at the International Committee for Museums and Collections of Modern Art. Before all that, why not try a digital subscription to the art newspaper? The price for the first three months is £1, $1 or €1, depending on where you live, and then it's £10, $10 or €10 per quarter afterwards. You get full access to the website and the app for iOS and Android mobile devices, plus the e-paper archive of the newspaper and art fair dailies. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe, and the promo code is TRIAL, all in capital letters. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, of which a new series begins this week with a conversation with the artist Stan Douglas. Do also give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in consecutive weeks, two exhibitions are opening in which one of the titans of modern art, Pablo Picasso, is shown alongside a historic master. In London, a two-painting exhibition at the National Gallery, Picasso Ingres, face-to-face, Père Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres' painting, Madame Le Moitessier, completed in 1856, with Picasso's Woman with a Book of 1932. In Basel, meanwhile, at the Kunstmuseum, a much bigger show looks at the profound effect of El Greco on Picasso's art across his long life. So what in inspired Picasso's direct engagement with his forebears. First, I spoke to Christopher Riopelle, the curator of Picasso Angra at the National Gallery. Christopher, Picasso's fascination with Angra is actually a lifelong fascination or career-long fascination, but you've chosen to focus on one particular pairing here. Can you tell us something about it? The pairing is the great portrait of Madame Moitessier by Ang between 1844 and 1856, and Picasso's woman reading a book of 1932, which probably took two or three days, but which is deeply indebted to the Ang portrait, which he had first seen in 1921. Yeah, tell us about that. So Picasso had been a student of Ang, really had, in in the sense that he had gone and seen his drawings as a young artist and things like that, but he saw this in 1921 in Paris, is that right? Uh, Exactly. He had been fascinated by the astonishing technical virtuosity of Ang, how he could do anything with a pencil, anything with a paintbrush, and right from 1901 when he gets to Paris, he is committed Uh, as many artists were. But a big Ang exhibition retrospective of 1921 
is where he first saw this portrait. It had been lent by the family, the daughter of the sitter, and it clearly uh, stuck in his mind for a very long time afterwards. When one thinks of Picasso and Ang, one particularly thinks about that sort of neoclassical period of the late teens into the 20s. What we're looking at here is actually from a, a later period, the Marie Therese period of the early 30s. It's not an obvious association were it not for the direct quotes from the composition, as it were. There are a number of direct quotes in it, and the mystery or maybe the double mystery, is that he saw the painting in 1921, but it's then 11 years later that it suddenly bursts forth in this, the biggest portrait of Marie-Thérèse, of the many of those years around 1932, and the biggest and arguably the most accomplished, he then doesn't show it for four more years to 1936. So clearly it was a kind of gnat in his ear the anger, and then his response to it. Should we talk about the particular details? Because the level of close adherence to that original anger composition is really quite something, isn't it? Because even down to, for instance, the wooden carving in the very background of Angra's and the window in the Picasso. Yes, over and over again, the flowered sleeves of Marie-Thérèse's dress, which evoke the flowered silk dress Madame Moitessier, is wearing the mirror in the background in both paintings, and, uh, of course, most famously, most unforgettably, the right hand raised to the brow. And one of the things that it calls attention to, and this is the lovely thing about seeing works from different periods compared, is that obviously in the Picasso, that right hand is abstracted, but also it immediately calls your attention to look at the strange drawing of the anger, and this was something that was completely unexpected to me. Well, I think that the thing to which, right from the beginning, Picasso responded when he looked at Ang's work is, this is a very strange man. This is a very strange artist who is willing to do anything to manipulate space, to manipulate form, to make an image on a canvas. He didn't care. And it was over and over again, I think, it was the strangeness of what Ang did that appealed to him. Is this something that is widely discussed among Ang scholars in the sense that, you know, this, this idea of manipulating the drawing to fill the space, etc.? It is coming to be understood how anti-naturalistic he could be when he chose to be, when it suited his interests in making a compelling image. We see it right from the beginning. We see it right from the works as soon as he gets to Rome, or even before he goes to Rome in 1806. And by 18. 18- 10, his own teacher, David, is saying that he is mad, he is deranged. Uh, So willing is he to break the the rules David had established. That's extraordinary. And and then tell me about this long gestation of the anger work. Because as you say, you know, Picasso done in a few days, and this is 12 years. Why? I think that Ang found himself to be incredibly invested in this portrait of uh, a woman whom he came to admire very much, with whom he seems to have had a very amusing relationship among equals, which was not always the case with his portrait subjects. They were often very much grander than he was. He lived through many parts of her life, and she lived through many difficulties in his, including the death of his first wife. Right. And in terms of what 
the intentions behind the portrait were, they kind of shifted as the commission went on for so long, is that right? After seven or eight years, uh, Monsieur Moitessier, the man paying the bills, got very annoyed that he wasn't advancing with his portrait and told him to hurry up, at which point Ang put away this canvas, took another, and in six months completed an equally ravishing portrait of this woman dressed to go out in the evening. Uh, It's very funny that one portrait took so long, the other so relatively quickly, and yet I think it would be impossible for us to say which is technically more accomplished. They both are. I have come to the conclusion, or I'm heading to the conclusion, that it does have to do with the nature of his relationship with her, that he is trying to capture what we are coming to understand was a very complicated, rich, literate mind. She was, interestingly, the official guardian of a man who only two weeks ago the Pope named a saint, Charles de Foucault, Uh, Her daughter was in direct communication with him. It was a very spiritual relationship between them. And when you realize that she was capable of these intimate but deep relationships, you, you begin to see what he's trying to get at. Also interesting, of course, is that collaborative process that you talk about, particularly in the catalogue, with the sitter versus Picasso's relationship with Mary Therese Walter, which is very much the dominant male figure looking at the the female quote-unquote muse. And one even feels that in the way that he depicts her in this In, In a funny way, the Picasso is a much more traditional portrait of the artist and his muse, whereas the Ang... Uh, so much earlier, is trying to establish a kind of equality between sitter and painter, trying to work with her to create an image that they both could live with. Mm -hmm. And the way in which I guess that manifests most strongly in terms of the portraits is you see her reflection, clearly her reflection in the mirror, whereas in Picasso it, it appears that the reflection in the mirror may be Picasso's own. Is that the right reading? It, 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 I would say that. In both cases they're very ambiguous. It could be Picasso in the mirror in that painting. On the other hand, it would be impossible for Madame Watessier to throw a reflection that is a pure profile from the way she's sitting. He's manipulating the space to do what he wants to do and to show us, as it were, quite literally two facets of her personality. That's wonderful because what it again calls attention to is the fact that these are both inventions. Yes, he's sitting painting Madame Watessier, but at the same time, so much is happening in the studio, in front of the canvas. Yes. And she would often come to a studio and sit there, though this does show her private sitting room. And I think the privacy of the space they are depicted as inhabiting is very important here, um, that it is an intimate kind of one-to-one relationship. It was certainly a private and intimate relationship between Picasso and Marie-Thérèse, but one has very much the sense he was telling her what pose to take what book to have open on her lap, how to turn her head. And that is curious about the book, isn't it? Because in the Angra painting, we're looking at at her holding a fan, but it turns into a book in Picasso's painting. Was there any explanation for this? He offered none, certainly. He almost always gives her something to do, even if the thing he's giving her to do is sleep. 
in certain cases. I believe in the Moitessier, the closed fan, and it's probably very important that it's closed, uh, she is not performing in public. She is having a conversation with him in private, and we're meant to understand that. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that as soon as this work was in the National Liang, there was an immediate comparison with the Picasso by Georges Dutuy, who's actually much more connected to Matisse. Tell me about that. Well, Georges Dutuy is Matisse's son-in-law, and the one thing we know about Paris in the 30s was that Picasso was watching everything Matisse did, and Matisse was watching everything that Picasso did. And perhaps it's no accident that Matisse's son-in-law should be the first to comment on this picture, because we, the National Gallery, buy the Madame Watessier in March of 36 at the same moment as this is on view, not so far away, in Paris as well. They overlapped, and there was huge press in this country, uh, and Dutuy's essay saying the Picasso is a metamorphosis of the Ang uh, was published in The Listener, the BBC magazine, which everybody read at that point. Uh, so, in fact, the first thing many, many people in this country would have known about the Ang painting is that it relates to a Picasso painting. That's amazing. Well, thank you very much, Christopher. You're welcome. Now, Carmen Jimenez was, for many years, a curator of 20th century art at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. And there, in 2006, she curated a show called Spanish Painting from El Greco to Picasso. Now, she's returned to Spanish art, but focused just on the two artists who bookended that show, El Greco and Picasso, and brought them together in a major exhibition at the Kunstmuseum in Basel, which opens next week. I spoke to Carmen as she arrived in Basel to install the show. Carmen, I'd like to begin by talking about Picasso's youth because his father was an artist, but he didn't discover El Greco through his father, did he? No, no, not at all. I think um, his father brought him to the Prado the first time he came to Madrid and he was like uh, a young boy, 14 years old, and um, that was his first visit to the Prado. Then the father insisted when he was 16 to send him to the Royal Academy de Bellas Artes where uh, he was supposed to have a trading, and so that was important for his father. And um, the Royal Academy of you know, I am part of the academia today myself, and I am uh, I'm very happy because <laughs> it was created by Goya in Goya's time, and all the big artists in Spain were part of this academia. But at the time of Picasso, he really was a bit bored in the academia, so he went to the Prado and he spent his time in the Prado. And with his friends uh, from the academia, so they, they love, they discover El Greco. Because he went to the Prado with his father, as I said before. But then in this case, he was already willing to be an artist himself, and so he was uh, trying to, to perform his uh, career. And so I think for him, uh, his attraction was El Greco. Of course, he liked Velázquez, but uh, El Greco was the strong point. And then when he left the academia and um, he passed the exam and uh, he came back to Barcelona, all his friends in Barcelona loved El Greco, and Zuluaga has just bought this fantastic painting by El Greco, who has uh, been uh, the inspiration for Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, you know, from this point of view. 
Yeah, and that's astonishing, isn't it? Because very early on, he's making drawings. There's there's the famous exclamation. Yes, Joel Greco, you know, all those drawings he does. When you look at El Greco, it's, it's extraordinary because he's a contemporary artist even. Because at the difference of the other artists, Velázquez, for example, which is a great artist, it didn't depend on any king. The king, Felipe II, did not want to have him working for him. So he installed himself in Toledo, and so he became uh, working for people, you know. He became like every artist. He had to have clients and sell them and paint them and, you know, paint people. He was uh, totally depending on the market. And he lived a long life because yeah. uh, he died, he was 73, you know. So that's, uh, for the time, a very long life. In 1614, he was uh, working until the last moment. In terms of the paintings, where you really see... El Greco emerge into Picasso's work is in the blue period and particularly with the death of Casagema, his great friend. Yes. In those uh, uh, early moments, you know, with um, the death of Casagema and all this blue period, that was uh, the apogee of the story between Picasso and El Greco. But then the interesting situation is that he went on. That didn't stop there, you know. So I think uh, El Greco was... Uh, with him all his life, you know, so he, he went on being very present. And of course he has Velázquez, of course he has other artists, but El Greco was there. So something which did attract my attention is by going to the Prado so much in my life is to see that El Greco is very well represented there, but the, you see Velázquez and you, you, you don't hear about El Greco anymore. And you wonder what was, uh, I wonder what was Velázquez thinking of El Greco, you know, because he must have known him. And so you, then by studying in this exhibition, I saw the books and I found a very good information about uh, Velázquez, of course, love El Greco. And uh, he admired him he admired, uh, as a portrait because he was, uh, Velázquez is a magnificent portraitist, but El, El Greco mm. was the first fantastic portraitist. When Velázquez died, they find in his studio three magnificent portraits of El Greco, which are in the Prado today. And so that was interesting for me to see, because that was uh, the explanation, too, that those portraits of El Greco were essential to the tradition of Velázquez and of Picasso. Picasso, Picasso goes into that. You can see that in the exhibition, too. Through this exhibition, I have... Uh, seen all the relation of Velázquez and El Greco. El Greco is always le parent pauvre, as we say. You know, he's not the, he was not put in his place, you know. He was not understood. And especially the late El Greco. The Greco, and he, he start to be completely vertical, out of proportion. So that's come the idea of the apostoles being the cubism, you know. The apostoles, which are done in... A, very special way, and uh, Picasso uh, studied them. They were very essential for Picasso. They were part of the cubism. That's a little bit the point of this exhibition I'm doing here. Yeah, and you very daringly and really wonderfully, it seems to me, from looking at the catalogue, put the apostles right next to those analytical cubist portraits. But obviously, one of the ways in which you can really emphasise that individuality of El Greco is is showing that direct combination, that sort of very modernity in his handling of paint right next to Picasso. Exactly. I wanted to talk a bit more, you mentioned Demoiselle, and because there is so much emphasis with the Demoiselle 
and the influence of African art, for instance. It's easy for the El Greco influence to be forgotten, right? I think that before, before the African, I think uh, it will be El Greco myself. I really believe that. African was there too, but I think uh, El Greco was there before. And it was particularly the vision of St. John. Exactly. Can you say what Picasso took from that work? You, you explain it very well when you see the, the a cubist painting and, uh, and the painting, because then you see how Picasso break the line, you know, break the line. There was the moment towards the end of Picasso's life where he synthesised Velázquez and El Greco and, of course, yeah. Rembrandt in the form of a signature on the back of his one of his musketeer paintings. First El Greco, second Rembrandt, third Velázquez. Rembrandt was very important to Picasso. Yeah. And uh, when you look at the, that painting, uh, the man who he represents has looks more, in that case, uh, he looks Rembrandt too. Rembrandt is part of the dialogue too. And Picasso responded directly to El Greco's burial of Count Orgas, didn't he, in his painting, The Burial of Casagemas. And in that painting, you sense it's not just a homage, but there's a certain irreverence to it, because for him in the sky, it's not just a celestial body of saints and the Holy Spirit, etc., but this image of sort of sexual pleasure. It could be not pornographic, but we could say that, you know, it's, uh, it's very shocking. It's very shocking to have uh, such a painting in a church, in a way, you know, and that they accept it. Because if you look directly at that, it's uh, very sexual, too, you know, it's, it's, it's very free. It's a freeness. And I think this freeness is really is because Velasquez was working for a king. El Greco, at the end, was not working for Felipe II, so he was free. His friends were the poet, were the writers, like Picasso. Picasso, his friend were always uh, the poets, the writers, was not very friendly with other artists. He, don't, he did not have... Uh, uh, he painted with Braque, uh, with whom during a period they were close together, but it was not a friendship like he had uh, with Apollinaire, I will say, mm-hmm. you know, which uh, that was a, a great, great friendship, you know, a beautiful friendship. And I think uh, El Greco has exactly that... Uh, that history before him, you know, that make him free, you know, he was free. He did not have to please uh, the master, or he didn't have to please the, the king or the client. He, he have to say what he feels, to paint it what he's, he saw. The more you get into El Greco, the more you see the modernity of this man, the, the freeness. He didn't, he didn't mind proportion, you know. He, he, those paintings he did, at the, which are in the Prado at the end of his life, and we have one here in this museum right now, which I'm very happy. The more you look at that painting, it's a, it's a really an extraordinary moment in, in painting. And lastly, I wanted to ask, what do you think Picasso was trying to do with the old masters in terms of his own status? Did he see himself as matching them or was he attempting to compete with them as well as... No, 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 I don't think he was competing with them. I think uh, he was uh, on the dialogue, not on competition. And then I think uh, he was always changing because he understood uh, he did not want to have a style like many artists get a style and they have the same style for the rest of their life. Carmen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
Picasso Ang face to face is at the National Gallery in London until the 9th of October and Picasso El Greco is at the Kunstmuseum in Basel from the 11th of June until the 25th of September. Coming up, Louisa Buck talks to Chris Levine about his portrait of Queen Elizabeth II and I talk to Garanka Horian and Bart de Baer about political meddling in museums. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. In what's being described as a politically motivated attack, vandals have targeted the exhibition space of a Palestinian artist group taking part in Documenta 15. The incident's being considered in relation to a mounting anti-Semitism row surrounding the exhibition in Kassel in Germany, which takes place every five years, with the latest edition opening on the 18th of June. The pro-Palestine stance of artists from the participating group The Question of Funding, as well as the Palestine-based organisation Khalil Sakakini Cultural Centre, has caused the against anti-Semitism in Kassel to speak out against the exhibition for involving what it describes as anti-Israeli activists and for violating Germany's strict anti-Semitism laws. Question of Funding's exhibition space was vandalised with graffiti that's been interpreted as Islamophobic and containing cryptic death threats, according to a statement released by Documenta on Tuesday. The Louvre Museum has decided to become a civil party in the wide-ranging criminal investigation into the alleged trafficking of ancient objects from the Middle East. The decision was made in connection with the purchase of Egyptian antiquities by the Louvre Abu Dhabi, according to a statement from the institution. It adds, the Louvre would like to emphasise the utmost unwavering and ongoing commitment of its scientific experts in the struggle against illicit artwork trafficking. The action comes after the Louvre's former director, Jean-Luc Martinez, was charged with complicity of fraud and laundering of antiquities allegedly smuggled from Egypt and purchased by the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Martinez has vigorously denied all allegations and expressed his confidence that he will be completely cleared of the charges laid against him. Meanwhile, as part of the same investigation, five Egyptian antiquities worth more than three million euros have been confiscated from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York by the New York District Attorney's Office. And finally, crowds in the Louvre witnessed a man attempt to smash the protective glass surrounding Leonardo's Mona Lisa before then smearing cake across its surface. The act is thought to have been an environment-related protest. Eyewitnesses told the French press that the man had disguised himself as an old woman in a wheelchair wearing lipstick and a wig. He leapt out of the chair to attack the work and then later threw flower petals on the ground. He has not yet been formally identified. The painting was unharmed. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android and iOS, which you can get from Google Play and the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Christie's New York welcomes the summer season with a suite of old master sales, including the added online sale Old Masters No Reserves that continues until the 16th of June. Engage in the much-anticipated Old Masters New Perspectives masterworks from the Alana Collection sale on the 9th of June and join the implicit dialogue between the original masters of Italian art and the contemporary masters of today. Delight in striking examples by El Greco and Gentileschi and explore the rediscovered work by Fra Angelico. Find out more at christies.com. Now, this weekend is the Platinum Jubilee, a series of celebrations marking 70 years since the accession to the throne of Queen Elizabeth II. To mark the occasion, this episode's work of the week is Lightness of Being, one of the most famous depictions of the monarch in recent years, in which the artist Chris Levine pictures her with her eyes closed. Our contemporary art correspondent Louisa Buck spoke to Levine about the work. So, Chris, the image that you're probably best known for is this image of Queen Elizabeth II 
in full regalia with her eyes closed. And it came about by chance, didn't it? Can you talk a little bit about how this image actually happened? Yeah, so we were in the yellow drawing room, which is where Her Majesty has most of their portraits taken because that's a nice natural light. But for what I wanted to do, I took it into blackout. I had incense burning. I had a colour modulator, which is a very slowly, meditatively moving kind of colour field and an, an ultraviolet cross. And when Her Majesty came into the room, she could see it wasn't just an easel in the corner. There was all this equipment, a bit like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. And she you visibly, you know, could see her kind of clocking. This is, this is unusual. And what I was conscious of with Her Majesty, because we had a camera that moved along a track from left to right to take 200 different views. We were shooting in 3D. And I wanted to time the movement of the camera, which took eight seconds, with Her Majesty's breathing. So it'd be like a cycle, and there'd be a sense of... with the breathing and with a sense of calm in the camera movement. And I might try and capture that in the sequence. But what happens also was that there's a lot of light onto Her Majesty. So while the camera did its pass and then reset, recalibrated, there was a lot of light blasting onto Her Majesty. And I asked if she'd like to rest in between shots. And so she closed her eyes... And I had a reference camera in the middle of the track because one of my ideas was I was going to texture map a photograph onto a computer model. So I had this camera right in the centre of the track and we captured that moment. And it wasn't until some time later that, you know, I saw it on my hard drive because, you know, the commission that I delivered, Equanimity, which is in Mont Orgyle Castle, was on the cover of Time magazine, it was eyes open. But it was the eyes closed that really resonated with people. So originally you were commissioned by Jersey to make a portrait of the Queen. So this wasn't even a commission. This, so can you just talk a little bit about the sort of background of, of how it came to be? Because you were doing a completely different commission and you were even rather surprised to get that, I gather. Yeah, in 2004, it was 800 years since the island of Jersey broke away from France and pledged allegiance to the Crown, and they wanted to mark that with a modern portrait. And the curator and sculptor Gordon Young, who was appointed by Jersey to oversee the commission had seen the work I'd been doing experimenting with light and had done one or two hologram portraits, but he put me forward as a wild card. So there was a short list that he put to Jersey in the National Portrait Gallery of, you know, who he considered could, you know, undertake this commission. And it was, you know, some household names and me. And But I was a wild card and I was the one that they thought might take it into the future. The whole purpose of the commission was to create a portrait that would celebrate the modern relationship of Jersey to the Crown. And you were known for taking lenticular, i.e. holographic prints, as well as your regular photography. I'm not a photographer. I mean, I use photography in my projects and I bring in really capable, like I'm doing a, a, a portrait in a couple of days' time. I have a, a DOP, a director of photography, people who can really technically handle the camera well and I can art direct and it's my vision that I'm executing. So I use photography, which is a, it's a form of capturing light data in my projects. In this instance... I was making a hologram. So I you know, put together a, a really good team of who I considered to be the best in the field of holographic image making and then you know, created and executed my vision. And it could have been a hologram, but also I was looking at other ideas. One of them, you know, I was going to laser etch into crystal. I was thinking of using a very high-resolution LED screen. I just wanted to create an image, an iconic image, that would be translated using a very modern medium, but the art of it is not to get the soulful connection lost in translation. So can using a lot of technology like a hologram, sometimes the wow factor can take over. Um, so in the end, I chose a, a lenticular process, which involves using a camera on a moving track, 
to shoot a true hologram would have meant exposing Her Majesty under laser light. There's all kinds of health and safety issues there. You know, Chris, you're not going to blind the Queen of England. No, you can't do that. And it could have been game over. So I went a safe route, shooting with photography and then using a system called a holographic stereogram, which takes each frame of the photographic sequence and makes a hologram of it. So it was a holographic stereogram, and that was what was first displayed in Jersey, unveiled by Prince Charles at the Jersey Museum. So how did you feel getting this commission? I mean, you're stepping into the shoes of so many portrait painters, Cecil Beaton, Lucian Freud, you know, Anagoni, Jamie Reed Sex Pistols, all kinds of, you know, iconic images of the Queen. What sort of things were going through your head when you were given that commission? Well, I, I, I thought, first of all, that I would be told what to do, and in the sense that I'd have to involve certain props, icons, and that the image would have to talk on different levels. For instance, would I have to have the three leopards of Jersey, Mondal Guile Castle in the background? But ultimately, it was left entirely up to me, which is, you know, liberating, but also a great challenge, because, you know, she's the most portrayed woman in history. And, you know, it's going to be great if I get it right. But if I don't, it's going to be my responsibility. I couldn't blame, well, we shouldn't have done this or that. It, it was entirely up to me where I took the image artistically. And, uh, you know, luckily it worked out. You chose the 1820 diamond diadem, which is also the same crown that Lucian Freud chose as well. The ermine wrap. I mean, was this because you wanted her to be looking uber queen, as it were? Well, up until a week before the shoot, I... Imagine that I'm going to shoot the Queen wearing what she wants to wear on the day. Who am I to tell the Queen what to wear? And I got a call a week before the shoot from Angela Kelly, the Queen's PA and dresser, to ask me what would I like ma'am to wear for the sitting. And then that, you know, that spun me out. That was the whole, now to think about, you know, where I could really take it a lot deeper now, was that I set out to create an icon. That's a word that's used and abused so much. But I really wanted to create an image that would distill to essence the Queen and all she stood for and to create a really iconic image that would really resonate. And so doing that would be to simplify it. One line of pearls, not three. You know, I wanted a selection of capes because I could change the look very quickly without changing the whole camera setup. And then with the diadem, I got to go through the crown jewels and selected Ooh. what I thought was a really simple, understated compared to some of the crowns, a nice simple cross. And it turns out the one, as you say, the Lucian Freud shows that, and it's been, it's, it's a very important crown. It's one she wears for the state opening of Parliament. And it, yeah, it all came together as an iconic statement. So how was she as a sitter? I mean, you know, you've been up close and personal with the Queen on two sittings, I think. I mean, I'm dying to just know what, what was she like? How did she react to being a sitter? Did, did you instruct her as to what to do? Did you have a chats about things? Tell all. Yeah, two, two sittings and, and well, yeah, all I can, exactly, thank you. That's a disclaimer. Um, two sittings and two private audiences with her. I mean, originally it was only scheduled to be one sitting and I had to get it in the can. And we did. I mean, Her Majesty left the room after the first sitting and I thought, you know, we've nailed it. And I literally was laying on the floor. Hallelujah, we've done it. And one of her aides walks back into the room and said, Her Majesty enjoyed that. If you like another sitting, you just have to write. And so... We did do another sitting, and all the magic happened then. Then I had hindsight from what we'd achieved in the first sitting. But the first sitting, you know, was at the time where Prince Charles was getting in the neck in the press or something. George Bush was staying. I don't think it was the day for ma'am to have a portrait done. 
And she was more difficult to engage with than, than she was in the second sitting, where it was much lighter and all the magic happened. What but, did you chat about? Well, she, the first thing I had to do when, when, when she came into the room and I was briefed was to explain to ma'am what I required of her during the sitting and, you know, and some, what, some of the kind of protocol about how to interact with the Queen. And there were three setups that I had. So I explained to ma'am, you know, what we need to do. And I remember for the first few minutes I was talking to her and it was quite surreal. She was wearing the dress that I'd been holding up a couple of days previously, thinking, yeah, I think this is the one. And here was the Queen of England standing in front of me wearing this dress, the one line of pearls. There was no crown at the moment. On the morning of the shoot, I got a call from inside the palace to say, was the crown really necessary? There'd been an oversight, really apologetic, but getting the crown across from the royal collection with the security is not that easy. And apparently they put it to the Queen. He said, if he wants the diadem, he shall have the diadem. And then Angela just brought it over. So glad she did, because that really was a, you know, a, a nice touch on the image, to say the least. So the first sitting was pretty mechanical. And as I say, I think, you know, maybe there's, you know, you can only imagine what's going on in her mind. And there's, you know, she, she hears so much, I'm sure, that we, we never get to hear about. And it was the second sitting that, you know, when, I remember when she came in and, you know, how are you, Chris? And it was just, a, just generally just a much lighter atmosphere and... Because I'd already established that the ermine really worked well. You know, the selection of capes, one of them was a military one, was a very different look. But she put on the ermine and it was, uh, you know, I just felt I channeled it. You know, I was just making this thing happen. That was a very special moment. So it was the second sitting that you got equanimity, the jersey portrait with the eyes open, and also, by chance, the likeness of being with the eyes closed. It was in that hour? Was it an hour? Yeah, but just just over an hour. And, yeah, it, it, you know, we, we were very focused... I mean, unlike a, you know, a fashion shoot where you can try this angle, that angle, change the lighting, change the garment, with the stereogram and the 3D shoot, the geometry is very specific. So the distance that the, the sitter is away from the camera, how far the camera moves, you know, the lighting. So I was going for the shot, you know, and because I had the first sitting under my belt, I had hindsight. I could look at how I could tweak it make some final adjustments. And I saw Mario Testino the day before the second shoot and he gave me some pointers and I just zeroed what in did he say? the shot. Well, w- one of them was about, you know, it just keeping it really simple, straight on. And, you know, um, you know, we'd have been looking at three-quarter angles and, you know, different compositions. But um, the first sitting I'd shot looking upwards, which gave it a very different look. And I softened it by bringing the camera up and it, it gave it a much more gentle feel. And, of course... Then you discover, four years later, that you've got this eyes-closed image. And there it is on your hard drive. Did you notice her closing her eyes at the time? Because you're very keen on a meditation, so it probably was something that struck a bit of a chord with you. Yeah, I, I was acutely aware of the eyes shut, and that's why we captured it. But but also, I was thinking you know, at the time, almost evangelically, because it was just when I was getting into meditation, that if the world meditated, what a different place it would be. And so this was really, you know, in my psyche, you know. And, you know, I wanted to you know, create an image that had a sense of calm. My working title as I developed the project was Serenity and the titles Equanimity and Lightness of Being came to me during meditation and I put it to the Queen when I met her at Windsor Castle to show her the work in progress because I chose a, a short edit of five images. This is for equanimity, eyes open. This is for equanimity, the eyes open, of course, will come on to lightness of being, but the the official portrait, because she's a lady, I wanted her to feel good about the image and flattered, so I chose an edit of five, which had 
pretty much the same type of image, but there were different nuances between them. And we chose the one that I would then go on to develop into 3D. So she knew exactly which one she wanted. So she knew it and she was comfortable with it. And I asked her then how she felt about the title of the work, that it could be equanimity and that, you know, that somehow, you know, represents the relationship. And she approved that. But Linus of Being, you're right. And it was some years later that I was, long after I delivered the commission and I've kind of moved on from it, uh, looking through my hard drive at some of the outtakes. And I saw this image and it just really spoke to me. It was immediately kind of jumped off the screen. And very quickly I applied a filter to it and haven't touched it since then. It happened within 30 seconds, almost like I was just channeling it. It came up on screen, I did something to it, and then left it at that. The only thing I did tweak was the colour of the lipstick. I just slightly tweaked it to contemporise it. I'm looking at a version of it as we sit here. It's very disquieting in a strange way because it's intimate. It also, because of the way in which the light falls on her, she sort of radiates light but has a tremendous pallor as well. So it looks like she could be laid out she could be no longer with us she could be not alive or there is also this intimacy of the eyes closed it's it's there's a lot of tensions going on in this image it is i think it speaks on so many levels it can be interpreted in so many ways and you know because it's been up to me where i've allowed it to be published i've been very discerning about how it's used because you could use it to say all kinds of things and you know ultimately i've only allowed it you know to to be positive and to be light and it's been a light box sometimes hasn't it it has and in the national portrait gallery the official portrait there's a version of it hanging in jersey as a light box and that's the 3d because equanimity we shot that with the moving camera that shot the different views creating the 3d it was designed so the, the image equanimity is really solid but 3D. lightness of being as well well lightness of being we generated from a stills photograph so that was just shot from a stills camera that wasn't moving along the track so we computer generated the depth and uh, yeah, I did that some years later in 2008, and that's when I first showed it at my show Lightness of Being, which was at the Truman Brewery, normally a kind of street art gallery in, in the East End. And, yeah, then that put it out to the world. And she's seen this image? She's approved it? Did you show it to her? I showed it to her. It's, it's kind of policy not to really comment, but, you know, I think that... Go on. I've been... <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I've, you know, that I was given two private audiences with her, I think I would have heard there would have been a knock on the door. You know, although it's my copyright, I can do what I like with it. I think if I had abused it in any way or if she wasn't happy with it, I, I would have come to hear about it. But she authorised you using it, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, or gave not, her tacit not exactly, approval. But yes, exactly. Because when on the Friday before my exhibition opened, the Daily Telegraph were featuring it in a big way in, in the Telegraph magazine. It's going to be the cover of the Telegraph magazine, which it turns out is the Queen's favourite read. So I assumed that obviously the Telegraph and the Palace have been talking and everything's cool to publish the work. And I find out on the Friday night that the, the Palace don't know that this is coming out on, on Saturday. The Queen's going to read it tomorrow. She likes to read the, the Telegraph magazine. It's on the cover. That was a hairy moment. The weekend of thinking, am I going to go? I'm going to the Tower. This is it. Because I assumed, you know, as you would, wouldn't you? But ultimately it was fine. And Angela Kelly assured me that, you know, the Queen knew that the work's done with good intention. And, you know, I've you know, had a real affection it, you know, but there's images of the back of Her Majesty's head. There's images where I bleached it out. I mean, that's illegal, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you know, it could have gone wrong. But because the intention was good, 
Her Majesty didn't have a problem with it. And you now have a version, an iteration of Lightness of Being in this exhibition at Sotheby's, which is to raise money for the pageant. And what version of the Queen are we seeing in this in this particular current show? Yeah, it's a light box. It's a lenticular light box. And it's being auctioned this month to raise money to fund the pageant. And, you know, it's been an honour to donate it. And, you know, it's amazing that the image, it's really touched people. You know, whether you, what you feel about the monarchy or whether you're a royalist, there's a spiritual dimension to the work that I think really touches people. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. And finally this week, there's growing concern about increasing political interference in museums in Europe. Most recently, the hugely respected Jaroslav Sushan was dismissed with no explanation from his position as the director of the Museum Sztuki in Wurz in Poland by the country's deputy culture minister. The Polish government replaced Sushan with the conservative artist Andrzej Biernaki, who's run a private gallery but has no museum experience. The extent of government meddling in museums in Central and Southeast Europe is laid bare in a report called the Museum Watch Governance Management Project, convened and led by Intercom, the International Committee for Museum Management, and CMAM, the International Committee for Museums and Collections of Modern Art. It's part of CMAM's Museum Watch programme, founded to help museum professionals deal with critical situations that undermine their ability to undertake their work. I spoke to Garanka Horyan, director of the Zagreb Ethnographic Museum and also director of Intercom, and Bart de Baer, chair of the Museum Watch programme and director of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Antwerp. Garanka, I wanted to start with you. We're speaking just as the art newspaper has been reporting on the situation relating to Jaroslav Sushan, the latest in a series of Polish museum directors to have either been replaced or dismissed by the Polish government or local government. And it seems a very distressing moment for museums in Poland. And this is something that you've been looking at in recent months. And it seems to be a moment of critical attention at the moment. Yes, it is, as uh, we are also noticing the same series of events in the Southeast Europe, where I come from. Uh, we were reported a series of changes among the museum directors in Slovenia, before that in Serbia, and recently also in Croatia. We had several cases of new appointments which were disturbing for the museum community and also caused a lot of media attention recently. Bart, I wanted to ask you about the nature of museums in the part of the world that we're going to talk about, which is Central and Southeast Europe. I mean, this is actually a phenomenon which it seems to me is rippling beyond that. But let's focus on that area first. What is it about this particular area that makes it distinctive from other parts of Europe or indeed other parts of the world? Well, I'm speaking from a very specific uh, perspective from CIMAM, which is the worldwide organization of modern and contemporary art museums. And I would like to start with something positive if you speak about these situations. Uh, to start with, there's really important museums of contemporary art there. They are part and parcel of the worldwide development. And the Museum of Łódź in Poland is the neck plus ultra of that. It's one of the earliest museums of contemporary art in the world, together with MoMA in New York. It has an astonishing collection, and it has an astonishing international trajectory. It's considered worldwide one of the leading museums. And that's, it's not only for that if you speak about, for example, the Museum of Zagreb, or Belgrade, or Ljubljana there, 
all museums that are not only decent national museums, but that are important international museums. So that's the thing to start with. And this comes from a past in which the publicness was by the, the socialist regimes taken completely on board, but in which there was very often a lot of space to maneuver and to keep focused on core developments in contemporary art. Stanislavski from which was one of the people you would automatically relate to if you would be interested in contemporary art. In the Museum of Zagreb, Mangelos, a major artist, was a curator for audiovisual media in 1970. In 1970, Belgium didn't have a contemporary art museum yet. Right. So there's that kind of staunch, that strong base. And then when uh, after the fall of the wall, when these countries were able and had to reinvent themselves, obviously this kind of public element was developed. And there was an immense, amazing energy coming from that in which basically the contemporary art situations reinvented themselves and positioned themselves internationally. So it's really kind of two zones that are very specific, but very interesting, and that now are seemingly run into clear problems. Yeah, and the clear problems, Garanka, are related to the kind of form of governance, because the Museum Watch report says there are two kind of distinct models of governance in museums there may be multiple but there are two key differences those that are so-called arm's length where political involvement seems to be uh, mitigated in some way but then others where political involvement with museums is very direct and is, is that what we're talking about in terms of this part of the world yes in fact, I would say that there is always an influence of politics uh, wherever we are, just not to uh, grow any illusions. Uh, because if someone is investing the money in your museum, you are dependent more or less uh, about your founder or financier. However, uh, what we have noticed recently is the growing interference of politics in our work and not only in director's appointments or general policy interference, uh, new legislations which are more restrictive for the autonomy of the museum, but also in programming. So by increased bureaucracy, by a very complicated administrative paths who are not transparent at all, where uh, political representatives and administration in the municipality, ministry, but mainly in municipality, can interpret and reinterpret the rules as they like, this leaves uh, museum professionals really on a thin ice uh, because uh, you are constantly uh, running something which is on the verge of being interrupted anytime, of being financially endangered or being changed in the course of the action and you have no or little control over those interferences. We see both the challenge and the problems are global. And the challenge is a basic one. It's not a bad one. It's, it is in itself not bad that there is an influence of politics. 
I would say that you want this museum because politics is important. You know, it's the organization of your society. And what you're doing as a museum is in a certain way to make a space where this can be reflected on and discussed. So you, you do want to have this kind of contact. The question is, how do you organize it? And then you can say you can have more or less distance. You make systems to, to make that happen well. And what we are seeing, essentially, it's not even changing regulations as people want. It's a kind of a, you see swamps appearing. Yeah. Swamps in this tension that makes it completely uninteresting, in which there is, the problem is not even a difference of opinion. The problem is that it's seemingly politicians in this increasingly more complex times have a hard time to still focus on this responsibility they have as a founder and just take no decisions at all or to take haphazard decisions without being informed and without having clear regulations while you would actually expect them to do this in a decent, transparent way. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's transparency. I mean, from afar, it seems extraordinarily crass that the Polish government would replace the current director, or rather now the previous director of the Museum Stuki and Wodz, with a person who has never had involvement in a museum and who has actually run private galleries. And it, it seems to me to be the most kind of direct form of ideological activity. Well, I, I don't know whether it's even ideological. I, I, it, it may just be incidental, you know, like having someone of whom you vaguely think he might be problematic and replacing him by someone whom you vaguely think he might be sympathetic. But the case is indeed astonishing because there's a group of about 50 directors of the most important museums in the world. It's called the Bizot Group. There's a bit of, with the big boys, you know, like MoMA, the Metropolitan, you know, all the really big institutions. Well, he was part of that, While, which is a truly important museum, but it's a relatively small museum. So that's an astonishing feat. He has been doing anything a museum director might do in the most excellent way over the past years, and there's not even an argument about why he's discontinued. He's actually very traditional. He's been a person who has been advocating and realizing the importance of Polish art worldwide. So... It's flabbergasting, but let's not be too negative. The replacement is an interim function. So we might say they, for vague reasons that are unclear to us, wanted to replace him. And there is now an interim, and let's hope that they will go still for a decent path. Such things occur regularly. And now we have a very prominent case with our colleague Zuhan. But you know, in any national museum or renowned city museum placed in the capital, if you are looking for a candidate for the director, at least it is expected that you are looking for a professional with experience in the field, that you do not appoint a person without a single day of work in a museum. And this is something what we really like to see, that our professional standards are fulfilled. And if any curator has to pass the exam, to become a curator, if all the people who work in the museum has to have some academic background, which is a requirement for the job, then the person who is on the top of that 
and who is responsible not only for administration and financial management, but also for programming for collections, should have the knowledge of the museum work. That's absolutely true. I wanted to also explore the sort of different types of museum, because as you say, Bart, you're particularly within the field of contemporary and modern art museums. But of course, there are historical museums Mm -hmm. as well. And of course, the political interference in those two types of museum might be different. So Bart, do you want to say something about that? In contemporary art museums, by the nature of them, because they're making something public on which there's no consensus yet. They're about developments. They deal with artists who are very often quite radical, straight and precise and pointed and effective in their opening up of new fields. You will have rather incidents. You know, you will have accidents. Oh, what's happening here? (laughs) Well, in historical museums, there you will have more kind of ideological Very often also quite shallow, but in a certain way, a kind of an ideological stance in which you want to have a kind of a monocultural narrative as opposed to the complexity and the diversity which any good historian will go for. So there you will have a kind of a a different kind of tension that is, I think, more structural. In contemporary art museums, it's more endemic. Our expert actually, when they spoke with the focus groups, uh, they came to this conclusion, but I would agree uh, with Bart. Not only this, let me just say one funny thing, that, for example, the uh, Croatian History Museum, so the national institution, has no permanent display for decades, for decades. Uh, And this is really a clear sign that, you know, (laughs) It is not easy to decide what contents should be put inside. Otherwise, the political powers, left, right, middle, would really go for it. Since we are a relatively young, independent country with the 30 years of independence, which we are celebrating this year in Croatia. But actually, in 30 years, there was not a consensus and there was no political will and uh, enough financing for the National History Museum. And obviously, this needs to be addressed. But how can one address it? What does this report recommend? Whether there's something which can be established that that can actually be workable, I suppose, is the question. Well, this is a hard question, of course, and we discussed it among ourselves uh, since, you know, when you have very different balance of powers, the authorities are really in the position to completely influence your institutional work and your institutional life. And on the other hand, the voice of museums is perhaps not heard enough. And what we have noticed recently in the crisis that are global now with the war in Ukraine, with the pandemics in our country, with earthquakes in all region, with financial problems that uh, culture in general is facing. So uh, the public sensitivity goes down. So you are just one of those voices that need the support. And this is very difficult for you, the position that you fight 
for bettering of your position. But on the other hand, we thought that maybe a joint forces on international level could be a good way out. Because in national uh, framework, you can't do much. Uh, of course, museums go to the media, go to the uh, public. But we must say that in our societies, media are also not neutral. They are divided. Then the conflict from the uh, museum space just goes into the conflict of uh, various sides of media. And this is not something we would really like to do. Uh, so an international toolkit which can help maybe this links uh, with uh, ethics and professional morale are something that can be questioned and put on a certain scale which then could have an impact on decision makers and authorities because nobody wants to see, I don't know, Slovenia, Serbia on the eighth place in the world for the autonomy of their institutions. Right. Um, you're calling it the cultural governance code, aren't you? Yeah, it, it's actually when we started with Museum Watch, when we reached out to Intercom, it was because these international agreements have quite a strong impact. For example, if you have a problem of a museum selling off works, you can say, well, yeah, the ICOM Code of Ethics is saying that you can do this, but only to acquire new works. So you, you have a very, a very clear international agreement on that. And we found out that for governance, this is less the case. That's how, how we started. And I would say that the flight lights which we see, I would see four directions. One is obviously the toolbox, which is saying like this and this and this and this are all mechanisms that may work. You know, the second one may be a code and that would, uh, I think, want to include the importance of a board. A board, not as a controlling mechanism, first and foremost, but as um, a caretaker as someone who's committed, as someone who's negotiating this tension between political urgencies or the kind of general ideas that float around on the one hand and museum position on the other. Related to that, the third element, and that was for me a very nice outcome of this research, is the importance of what you call stakeholders, but not stakeholders in terms of people taking, but in terms of people caring. And the fourth element is the kind of general ethical elements. So I, I would hope in, in the best case, I think one question will be how are we going to develop these specifics to governance? But another question may be, what would be the very, very basic things which we might even propose to be included in the ethical code? Because actually the museum system worldwide has only two elements on which it is resting. One is the ICOM definition of what the museum is, and the second one is the ethical code. ICOM has a lot of capacities, instruments, which it is developing, like the report which you are now speaking about and like what we are going to develop. Well, Bart and Gorenka, thank you both very much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. You can read the Museum Watch report at cmam.org. That's C-I-M-A-M dot org. 
And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentall and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Christopher, Carmen, Louisa and Chris, Bart and Garanka. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.